This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome once again to the Radio Detective Story Hour. Your comments are always welcome, and you can make them by going to the website at radiomemories.libsyn.com. You can also send me an email about this podcast at otrpodcast at gmail.com. That's otrpodcast at gmail.com. Tonight I'll be featuring an episode from Gangbusters. The series was the brainchild of veteran radio and television producer Phillips H. Lord. On the phone I have Martin Grahams Jr., author of many books on the subject of old-time radio and television, including Suspense, The History of the Cavalcade of America, The I Love a Mystery Companion, Have Gun Will Travel, and many more, including one called Gangbusters, The Crime Fighters of American Broadcasting. Welcome, Martin. Hi, Jim. Um, in reading your book, my impression of Phillips H. Lord is that of sort of a P.T. Barnum-style promoter of his own ideas. Is that sort of your impression? That was pretty much my impression. Um, a lot of money was really given to the producers of the series rather than the sponsors or the uh, actors. Um, so the people who really were making the uh, financial buck off the radio broadcast back then were the producers who came up with the show, created it, uh, made some money off the sponsors and then made a percentage off it after they sold it. Hyman Brown did a lot of that. And Phillips Lord was also in the same genre. He was constantly creating so many different programs. Not all of them, of course, became successes or even got it to the air, but he was constantly trying to create the next big thing in hopes that part fame, but most of it for the money, really. Okay, yeah, because I noticed that he sort of was a an idea factory, so to speak, for radio programs. I, I recall that in your book you mentioned Spotlight on Broadway, which was sort of an American idol and the last word, uh, which sounded kind of like a reality TV series for radio, sort of a Judge Judy type of a thing. It, it just sounds like he was kind of ahead of his time in, in terms of what's going on with television now. Right. He created a lot of uh, programs that um, I guess you could say were the mold of what had the shape of things to come. Uh, Gangbusters, of course, later seized out into uh, Unsolved Mysteries and, more importantly, uh, America's Most Wanted. Uh, like you mentioned, this, uh, Broadway was done more like uh, American Idol today. Uh, Seth Parker, of course, was more of a soap opera, which basically spread out to what today we call the daytime soaps. And so kind of he was basically, I'd say, one step ahead of everybody else, and he basically pioneered the way the programs that we watch today on TV. Did you get kind of a sense of the man himself in the research that you did? Because to me, the other thing about him is um, he, he he's he's not known just as Phil Lord generally or Phillips Lord, but Phillips H. Lord. It, it sort of has an ego aspect to it. A little bit. I do know that he had a big success with his Seth Parker program. That was really the first show that he created that 
really didn't stay just to the local areas. It actually went national and became very famous. Um, of course, there was a lot of products, books, scrapbooks, cookbooks, things like that, that uh, was a, basically was published at, in order to cash in on the program's success. And uh, after an incident with the crews of Seth Parker and a slight success with G-Men on the air, he realized he could create another national-known program, and gangbusters basically took off. But he was more of an entrepreneur. In college, he was doing the same thing. He was selling uh, college books to the co kids that were attending the same college, but he was actually underselling the, the school library and the school bookstore. And anything that he could create a buck on, he was doing that. And he basically caught on to the trick of radio. He'd come up with something everybody wants and then create other similar programs, spin-offs, et cetera. If it was a success one time, it should be a success again. Who actually was the Seth Parker character? Can you kind of describe him a little bit? Uh, Seth Parker was basically the pre-Andy Griffith of its time. It was a little tiny homespun town, a family, sort of like one man's family. They were very raised on spiritual uh, and moral obligations. There's a, basically a daytime story. Uh, they would sing church hymns during the actual broadcast, um, little morals to learn by. Uh, back then, of course, the society was a little bit more, uh, very much more stronger on the Christianity Based. It still is today, but back then it was very pushed into the streets, and and it basically kind of spread through all the uh, Christian organizations. It was endorsed by churches, uh, sort of like the Passion of the Christ did a few years ago, where tons of churches were just praising and hyping up the movie. So he had a little commodity with his program that, similar along the lines, it's a cross between church hymnals being sung and one man's family, and it was a very popular show for many many years. Okay. And then I think the last season of the series, he changed it to the cruise of the Seth Parker. He uh, convinced the networks that he wanted to go out and buy a boat, which he had a fondness for anyway, uh, put a radio station in the boat, and then went from port to port interviewing the people and asking the stories of what their, you know, what was going, what, what was some of your best sea-bearing adventures. And it became a nice little homespun story until an incident where the boat was... Uh, uh, sabotaged by a hurricane, and it involved a massive rescue from the British fleet, and it caused quite a controversy because there was some flair that he was actually doing it for the uh, uh, promotion of the series, rather than the law saving the lives of the people involved, and he had to go to court, and eventually I think the court verdict came down that he was not responsible for a hurricane, so or a typhoon, whatever came through that tore up the boat. So uh, he was able to walk away free, but it kind of injured his image for a short time. But Seth Parker was actually one of the five highest-rated programs on radio for about a three-year consecutive program, uh, three years uh, consecutive. So it was a very popular show. I understand this whole cruise incident came back to haunt him later as he was trying to get his uh, first crime series, at least the first crime series I'm aware of, G-Man on the air. Right. What he was trying to do was pitch other radio programs, and as a result of the cruise of Seth Parker. A lot of the uh, networks were really just trying to uh, avoid him because they thought he's just a big publicity hound. Uh, he caused a lot of controversy. Networks were actually investigated. And he was somewhat blacklisted by the stations and producers and directors who did not want to have anything to do with him. Um, he got his fair chance when he tried to fill up more thrills, um, a few other short-run thriller programs. And he proposed this idea called G-Men for uh, one of the radio networks, and it became a very big hit and proved that I guess everybody forgot all about it because once he became a success again, everybody wanted a piece of him, which is pretty much how Hollywood works nowadays. Yeah. It's like the, the, the joke about uh, 
the movie uh, Titanic when it came out. Uh, the joke was that Hollywood was going to start making a lot of more movies with boats that were bigger than the Titanic that would sink by an iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, G-Man series was kind of a prequel, I guess, to the uh, Gangbusters program. What's what's kind of the difference between the two? Well, G-Man actually wasn't supposed to originally take off as uh, Gangbusters. In fact, at the time, he never even had any idea that he was going to do a show called Gangbusters and do police case histories. Uh, he got cooperation with J. Edgar Hoover to do the series, and it was supposed to be a dramatization of the uh, true crime stories from the actual files of the FBI and how they would go after any of the villains and how they apprehended it. It was a good promo for the G-Men, for the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. And after a few months, the contract expired. Jagger Hoover was dissatisfied over various aspects of the program. And basically, Lord was left to fend for himself. And since he couldn't do a revive the same series by contract, he revived a series that was similar in nature called Gangbusters. Uh, the difference was that Gangbusters really didn't have any cooperation with the FBI whatsoever until later on when Gangbusters actually became somewhat popular and famous in the early 40s. But during the early 30s, the first few years of Gangbusters, it really had no endorsement by the FBI, no cooperation. Um, he, he did have that cooperation with G-Men. Uh, the Gangbusters originally started out with some crimes like G-Men based on two uh, FBI files, whatever they had remaining material to use. Then they turned to local news uh, law enforcement and any case crime histories that was reported in the newspapers across the country. Uh, more importantly, and the big factor was that in the uh, Gangbusters broadcast, there was actually a bulletin at the end of each episode in which they would describe a criminal at large. And just by the verbal description alone, they were able to apprehend hundreds of criminals over the years. And that was much uh, well acknowledged by a lot of the crime law enforcement agencies. Um, letters came in every week. On G-Man, that never happened. It was just a typical drama cops and robbers series. Okay. Now, G-Man was, was on about, let's see, Gangbusters was early 30s, so when was G-Man pretty much first on the air? G-Man came on from about 19, I believe it was pretty much 1935, and it was the last few months of 1935. Uh, July through September or July through October. It was only for a few months. It was just for a brief number of episodes. Uh, sadly, it's so early in our radio heyday that there's no existing episodes of it. Thankfully, some of the scripts exist, but... Uh, no one's been able to ever find any recordings of what G-Men is, so we can't really compare the actual broadcast to, to the surviving existing episodes of Gangbusters today. As far as Gangbusters goes, what made the show so popular? Uh, primarily, it was just a cops and robbers program. Before that, cops and uh, robbers type programs were not very widely done on radio. Christian organizations and such basically kind of banned horror, crime drama, anything that involved shooting of innocent people, criminal running down the street and shooting somebody off in the street was really considered taboo in many areas. Um, gangbusters, of course, featuring uh, uh, lingo, basically. They would have the they, they actually did their research, and Safe Crackers had nicknames for things like nitroglycerin and names for uh, cops, and they actually used those nicknames on the program. So young kids on the street actually took a liking to the nicknames and the slangs and tried to reproduce them. Uh, kids always played cops and robbers in the streets and back in the 30s and 40s. Uh, the show was also widely marketed. Uh, there was actually coloring books, little toys, cap guns, 
anything that can market gene uh, gangbusters was uh, done for basically marketing purposes and profit. And the most important part, of course, was that gangbusters promoted uh, uh, bulletins that would actually ha actually did help lead to the arrest of hundreds of criminals over decades. And that actually made gangbusters unique among most other radio programs. And surprisingly, many other crime programs really did not try to cash in on gangbusters' formula by featuring bulletins of other uh, criminals at large. It was something you would think that if a, another producer said, let's do a cops and robbers show, let's do the same thing that gangbusters is yeah. doing and see if we can help law enforcement. Nobody did. Hmm. That is kind of interesting. It, it, the show wasn't directly uh, marketed just to children, was it? I mean, it really was kind of an adult program. Oh, it really was, but it was also broadcast during the time slot, that cleverly broadcast during the time slot where young kids could be exposed to the program. Um, Shirley Temple, even today, will admit that she was actually a fan of Gangbusters, had a Gangbusters badge, a Gangbusters toy car. It was just a program that took off, very popular. I guess basically, like the reason people go to the movies, unless they want to go laugh at a comedy, it was really the action and suspense that they enjoyed listening to. And Gangbusters really was one of the first programs to come on the radio that majorly did accomplish that. Because if you look at most of the radio dramas during the early and mid-30s, there really wasn't a lot of crime programs. Uh, in fact, if there was a crime program, most people didn't get killed. And if somebody did, it was by accident, and their con the, the, the villain's conscience would plague them. The morals really just went out the door with Gangbusters, and the more violent and the more slang filled and the more gunshots they could use on gangbusters and the more action the more the ratings went up and the more the sponsors were interested the types of cases that the show tended to have i mean was there variation within it you sort of lay out in your book various different uh, episodes that you kind of highlight or genre of episodes and so on the problem is there's hundreds and hundreds of broadcasts that was done during the 30s 40s and 50s and very few a small small percentage actually exist in recorded form so what I did is as I was going through the scripts, there was a large handful of episodes that really just stood out as above-average script as opposed to a usual Cops and Robbers series, something that had a little highlight, something that had a little background to the script or the story that was interesting or amusing. So I tried to cover a lot of those. The formula for the series pretty much was not supposed to involve one particular criminal. The title would be addressed to the case of so-and-so, but usually, and they would usually be the ringleaders, but the reason it was called gangbusters was because the criminals had to pretty much be three or more people to be a gang. They felt mm -hmm. two people, criminals was a couple. So even if a villain had a girlfriend that's considered one extra person, as long as they had three bodies involved in the criminal activities, they considered that a gang. There were certain things, any cases that involved rape or other such tactics, burning of churches, racial indifferences, things like that was actually considered taboo by the producers and they would not cover any of that. Children were not allowed to be beaten on the show and no rubber hoses, no third degree methods by police were allowed to be featured on the program. So a lot of cases that were brought to their attention, the producers actually, and the scriptwriters actually tossed aside and said, we can't do that one. It was basically a formula and they stuck to the formula for the majority of the episodes, but like you mentioned, there's a handful that really do stand out as above-average scripts, or at least they documented case criminal histories of people like Willie, Be Willie uh, uh, the actor, who's nicknamed oh, the actor. Not Sutton. Um, yeah, Willie Sutton. Sutton, yeah. Um, okay. He was actually dramatized about three or four times, and what was unique about it was 
uh, after the first time, they gave an actual uh, description of the criminal at large. He was apprehended, taken to jail. Three or four years later, he was released. He caused another crime. They basically did another drama, the same drama about him. They just redid the same drama. Uh, another bulletin. A month or so later, he was apprehended again as a result of the bulletins, or a few days later. And then a few years later, he escaped from prison, and they basically did the same thing again. And you would think he would have been... Uh, which has surprised me that Willie Sutton, among many other actor, uh, criminals, would have actually vented their rage against gangbusters, primarily physically or even with a gun, track them down and go after them for having gone to the trouble of actually uh, <laughs> getting... They were, they were partly responsible for their arrest, and you would think when they get out of jail, the first thing they want to do is go track down the people who got them put in jail. And in the case of Sutton's, you would think after the second time he gets out of jail, he would have went after them and stopped them. <laughs> So I, I guess Phillips Lord never seemed to worry about that type of a thing. Um, I'm not sure. I was not able to find any information that stated he was actually in hiding, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had an office because he was incorporated for legal reasons, and the office was publicly known. The address was publicly listed. Uh, it, basically, anybody could write to the studio, and the information got forwarded to him. And because of the nature of most of the correspondence, it was a, it was literally considered a priority above certain letters. If you wrote a letter to William S. Paley at the CBS, and then you wrote a letter on the same day and put both in the mail, and the second one went to uh, Gangbusters or Philip Lord's office, Lord probably would have gotten it quicker, his quicker and first, only through inner office, only because it could have been information that by the hour that might have been needed immediately to get forwarded to the FBI. So the, his information and his address was publicly known. Um, it just somehow Now, there was a couple criminals that did try to fight him, um, one or two actually went to court and said, you know, you can't peddle soap, you can't use my name to sit there and try to, you know, cash in on me. And they took him to court, and a couple of times he actually did lose a case, and they were not able to do a part two of a two-parter because the court verdict said you can't dramatize his criminal career. So a lot of two-parters never got completed, only the first part, because of such incidences. Some criminals tried legally to fight him, but... uh I think a lot of them just really just didn't want to bother with trying to track them down. And if they did, I'm sure there was some cautious or caution advice to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you'd think that he'd have to have some kind of a budget set aside just to deal with uh, potential uh, lawsuits or whatever that may come against him. He did have, because he was incorporated, he had a monthly meeting with a bunch of his board. And most of them really consisted of his secretaries, his major scriptwriters for all of his programs and so on, and everything that was brought up within the past month that had to be decided by the board was brought up with a vote. And surprisingly, month-by-month meeting, I've gone through all the years' worth. There was nothing that was ever mentioned about security, no money put aside for such security. I think the minor amount might have been that his attorney had made a reference in one of the meetings that it might be advisable for legal reasons just to basically uh, be prepared for any comeback or anything that comes back to them to haunt them as a result of certain case histories being dramatized. But that was very briefly mentioned, and I don't think it was really a hot topic. At least it wasn't put in writing of sorts during the monthly meetings. From a collector's perspective, in your book, the titles seem to be much different than what I see out there in circulation. Your titles came from scripts? Uh, yes. The, the surprisingly, a lot of it, like a, some radio shows, uh, documentation is different. Some radio shows actually have two script titles. Gangbusters actually did have two script titles for a lot of them. In some cases, the, the majority of the part, they would have the, the case of the Seattle Safecrackers, as dramatized in the actual drama, in other words, where the narrator or announcer would open the episode of tonight's case, the case of the Seattle Safecrackers, 
but in reality, the actual script title was usually the case of Arthur dash Hollywood dash Neil, and it was going the actual script titles really went by the last names of the uh, criminals because it was easy reference to turn back to if they ever needed to go back to them. But in the actual script and the dialogue part for the audience, they gave it a more dramatic title. The case of the safe crackers and vault makers, or the case of the gentleman bandits. What I did was basically I went by the dramatic title or by the title that was used in the rare occasions twice, because sometimes they would use the actual name of the the actor, the uh, criminal. In other words, Martin Durkin was actually called the Durkin case on G-Men, but on Gangbusters it was actually called the case of Martin Durkin, and they didn't change that in the narrator as well as the script because that was basically was already done by the name. So I tried my best just to make sure the title was as accurate as it could be, but I just couldn't list both titles because in some cases there really wasn't two titles, and in some cases there was. It was really complicated with I can imagine. Had <laughs> well, sometimes you did actually cross-reference because I think if I remember right, looking through some of the... Uh, program descriptions I would see also known as or some reference you know to the other title right and uh, the odd part also the big factor was that after the first couple years after they apparently lost a couple lawsuits Phillips Lord had found out through some of the court cases they pretty much came to the conclusion that in order to do dramatizations of criminals at large, it was far more safer on the legal end to change the the name of the criminal to a fictitious name dramatize the case crime history if it was broadcast if it was featured in a uh, newspaper or a magazine article article because it was public knowledge but if the criminal was still on trial presently being tried or was going to be set to trial or was just arrested for a crime they did not use the real name they always changed it if the criminal was already found guilty in a court of law and then serving a sentence they then did use the real name because legally the people in prison didn't have much of a right to com- file complaints or anything, except Martin Durkin, I believe, was the only person to fight them over that and won. That's pretty much the legal angle for the program. So in many cases, they would actually feature the fictitious name of the criminals in the script, but the real title of the script actually did have the real names of the criminals. And I did have an attorney look over the paperwork and did suggest to instead of listing two titles for some of the episodes, he says, depending on the paperwork when you do your research, he suggested to me, if it's a story, if this title is basically the Egan Rats of St. Louis and the Egan Rats is definitely found guilty, go ahead and use it. If they were found convicted, if they were not convicted or found guilty and they walked away, which supposedly they did do the crime, he said, put the fictitious title that they used for the narration instead. Basically, it covers my butt also, but it, it gives the same rights to those people who were accused of a crime, but we couldn't find any paperwork that said they weren't guilty. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's an angle I never thought about, one of the whole problems around doing research with certain types of uh, material. So. It also, actually, it also proved to be the downfall for gangbusters. Right after the book was done, I actually did a count, and it turns out during the last two years of the radio series Gangbusters, the producers had received a total of 37 lawsuits by different people who were found guilty. Mistakes had been occurred. A newspaper reported the wrong verdict. Um, incidences where they really, the, the, what proved to be the downfall and caused gangbusters to go off the air was the same reason they were trying to legally protect themselves in the beginning. That criminals more and more, as the years passed, started filing more lawsuits against the producer, Phillips H. Lord's uh, production company and the corporation. And which is something that they really did in the early 30s. But as the years progressed, it became more of an actual occurrence. And 
that seemed to be one of the reasons that when they were considering whether they should take gangbusters off and stop doing it or go to television and such, um, one of the factors that was brought up at one of the meetings was, well, we're getting a lot of lawsuits here. We might want to consider it now. Hmm. And I think that was one of the factors the show went off the air. In one area in your book, you, you reference World War II. Uh, did the war change the tone of the, uh, the drama itself? I know you talk about a luncheon that he had with members of his staff and so on, but I haven't really heard all of the episodes enough to know whether or not it really showed any kind of a change in tone. A little bit. They didn't want to veer too far from what they were already trying to accomplish, and that is drug broadcasting um, true-to-case stories to set the moral that crime doesn't pay, that the G-men and the local police enforcement will track you down, and here's some of the methods, and if you think that's clever, we're not revealing everything. The idea was basically to show how clever criminals were, and then from that point, show how the police were able to turn around and be one step smarter than the criminals. So in case anyone got the same idea or ever wondered why no one ever got caught on such a crime, it was proven right there on the show, yes, it does. During the World War II, the, the only way they were able to incorporate I guess you'd say the war cause factor into the program because of the format of the show was already established was basically to present, present uh, case crimes of criminals that were trying to do stuff that was related to the war, such as draft dodging, um, printing counterfeit money and foreign currency that they were, we were supposedly allies with. Even one guy was even teaching a draft dodging school to kids. Anything that would actually benefit and basically promote the war cause, but also was still a crime committed by a, cr a gang of criminals, and the police actually investigated and arrested them. <clears throat> they really didn't have anything like uh, World War II aerial stories about airplanes and criminals shooting down Germans and Japanese. They just could not accomplish that on the program. Nothing uh, saboteurs or anything like that? Right. Phillips Lord also produced another crime program called Mr. District Attorney, mm -hmm. and that type of a program actually allowed more feasible scripts for war, the World War II effort. So except for maybe an, an occasional speaker on gangbusters, a guest speaker talking about how you can help prevent crime because such and such also is preventing the, is causing a war shortage on meat racketeers and so on. Mr. District Attorney was able to actually expand beyond what gangbusters did, and that was Philip Lord's larger contribution to the war cause. Does it speak more to his character or just that it's a, it was a profitable niche for him? Because uh, I noticed a lot of the programs that he actually brought to the air were crime programs. You, you're talking about gangbusters, treasury agent, counter-spy, policewoman, Mr. DA, all very right. crime-oriented. He basically did. I, I went through a lot of the scripts he had actually had written and apparently in some cases actually recorded test pilots to see if he could get a sponsor and a network to take another new program. Crime programs were easy because they were popular during the 40s, and that's about the time period he was really starting to introduce a lot of those shows like Police Woman and David Harding Counter Spy and Mr. District Attorney. Basically, he also had a lot of crime stories based on ripped from news newspaper headlines that they could not use for gangbusters because it was basically a solo effort by one criminal, not a gang. So he basically took that story and used it for uh, Mr. District Attorney. And he didn't want to waste a lot of material when he had it and he had access. He paid people all over the country. Anybody at that time could have submitted a uh, true crime story if they were even a witness to a bank robbery and was able to gather all the material. His office, if they wanted it, would say, we'll pay you 50 to to $100 if you can give us more information and details. We'll definitely want to buy such a story. So things like Mr. District Attorney and Policewoman was an opportunity for Lord to 
take what he had paid for but he couldn't use and put it onto another program. And with his name already attached to gangbusters by the early 40s, he was already a figured name. Like he mentioned, where it was the full name, Phillips H. Lord. Mm -hmm. So when it was announced as a Phillips H. Lord production, a few people probably were very curious, hoping maybe this might be the next program that'll be the next big gangbusters hit. So sponsors were always interested in programs. Even today, if a program like Survivor was a big thing for many years ago when it premiered on TV, now you got all these reality programs. Right. Survivor started it. And if the same producer of Survivor wanted to start a program, you can bet your bottom dollar every network would be interested in what he's got new. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I know there was at least one exception to that sort of that crime theme uh, that you mentioned in the book, and but it, it sounds like somebody actually brought the idea to him, and that was Sky Blazers. Yeah, that was a short-run series that he apparently had tried out. One of the things he did when he started doing any radio program, if it wasn't a crime program, was that he would put classifieds in newspapers asking people to submit four- or five-page treatments of from their typewriter, true crime stories of different aspects. Um, sometimes it might be an adventure yarn. Sometimes it might be, uh, uh, you know, have you saved somebody? Do you know somebody who's a hero in your local neighborhood? Send us the story. And Crime Blaze is pretty much kind of the same thing. He sent out a classified. He got enough material. He was able to do uh, 20-some scripts and then turned around and sold the series, a short-run series, to a sponsor and a network. Back then, it was so much. E it's much easier. It was much easier to sell a program because all you needed was one sponsor and one network. As long as both were appreciative and they wanted this, they felt it was feasible to do a program. It was sold. Nowadays, networks buy it, but they have to guarantee enough uh, sales and sponsor multiple sponsorships, or the show goes off the air very quickly. So, uh, Sky Blazers is one of those short-run series where. Uh, Lord got this contract signed. He did the series. He made a quick buck. Didn't go very far, but it was a successful series nonetheless. So I'm trying to recall because um, my first acquaintance with with Lord was obviously as I was growing up, and I remember some of the I believe Gangbusters. I think, think that's the one that was on television. Um, he had some other things on television around that same time. Do, do you recall what some of the titles were? Uh, on television, he did have a Gangbusters television series. Uh, he didn't do too much on rate on television. Uh, he saw it as a new fledging medium. He basically took his own money, put together his own programs, did them as syndication packages, except for the occasion, except for the first exception of Gangbusters. Um, he didn't do much because the he was much better as a radio producer than a television producer. Okay. I'll give you an example. He did two television pilots of Counterspy. They were very low budget. He filmed them in England. Uh, he submitted them to different sponsors and networks. Nobody wanted to carry the series. They said, well, it's popular on radio. We don't see it being a television series. And when you look at the actual the breakdown of what the show really was and what it really is, to take a 30-minute radio script of somebody walking around doing a small bit of investigation with no clever angle, whether it was a singing detective or a drunk detective, um, the networks were not really interested. Gangbusters was a success. It alternated every other week with Dragnet on NBC. The contract stated 17 episodes, but since Lord was doing everything himself, including directing a lot of the episodes, um, by the time he was done the 17, he almost had a nervous collapse. The doctor told him, you have to stop. Uh, it got listed down in many reference books, still is today, as being the highest rated program to ever be canceled off TV. It was never canceled. The contract expired, and a year or two later, he sat down with a bunch of friends and said, 
right now here's what you're going to do, and you're going to make a series for me because I can't get involved in filming another short-run TV series. And a second batch of gangbusters episodes, which are usually the more commonly circulated television episodes, uh, was, uh, was syndicated on TV, and the show did come back as a network program, um, not a national, but more of a syndication. But a lot of the programs he tried, uh, Mr. District Attorney, he ended up selling that series to Frederick Ziv, who was also a syndicator. Frederick Ziv uh, produced the last few years on the radio, and then since he owned the rights, he did a television series. But a lot of myths out there is that Phillips Lord actually owned the rights to the TV series or had anything to do with it other than creating it. He had no other involvement with the television series. Okay. And, and I believe there's a couple other television shows, but they were all shows that he had sold after he created it and moved on to the next program. Hmm. Well, let me uh, just give you a brief promo here. The, the book is called Gangbusters, The Crime Fighters of American Broadcasting. I'm curious uh, if you can tell us where people might be able to purchase a copy of the book. The book is pretty much available from almost any dealer who specializes with old-time radio who's been around for quite a while. Amazon.com does sell copies of the book. It's available at uh, oldtimeradiobooks.com. There's a website, uh, my website, martingrams.com. It's available. BostonPete.com, I believe, carries it. It's also available at most old-time radio conventions. And if anyone's ever interested in buying one over the phone or through the publishing company, the phone number is 717-456-6208. They can also get some of your other books the same way? Uh, yeah, same way, same sources. Well, any and all the books that I've written, except for one or two that might have to go through different publishers, but they're still available on the online sources. I've been speaking with Martin Grams, Jr., author of Gangbusters, The Crime Fighters of American Broadcasting. Marty, thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be on the show. And now an episode from Gangbusters from September 15, 1944, the case of Belansky and Tillotson. And now, Gangbusters! Gangbusters, presented in cooperation with police and federal law enforcement departments throughout the United States. The only national program that brings you authentic police case histories. Valentine, former commissioner of the largest police force in the world, takes over for gangbusters to interview by proxy Sheriff T.L. Head of Tunica County, Mississippi. Commissioner Valentine. Commissioner Head, the notorious criminal, Valansky, has been front page news within the past three weeks, and we're all very anxious to hear the inside facts. Well, Commissioner Valentine, in the spring of 1940... Stanley Belansky and his partner, James K. Tillotson, were two of the trickiest gunmen at large. Using the names of Robert Hack and James Stewart, they stopped at a fashionable inn at Laconia, New Hampshire, and posed as sons of very wealthy families. Uh, how about it? Another demi-task, Belansky? Will you cut out that Belansky stuff? Registered here is Hack and Stewart. Somebody will hear you. Okay, okay. Oh, but what a hotel. A dining terrace overlooking a mountain lake. Yes, sir. Home was never like this back at the penitentiary. Oh, stop the gagging. Okay, okay. Yeah. There's something in the newspaper that might interest you. Let's see. Wells Beach, Maine. Local store robbed by two masked gunmen. 
Now, I wonder who they could be. You know, you'd think those guys would learn that crime don't pay. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you, though? Oh, come on. Come on, let's go. Now, we ain't had no dessert yet. I said, come on. against the rail like this, kind of casual like. What for? To see those two girls just finishing dinner across the pavilion? I'll say, a couple of dolls. Well, one of them is Martha Sanford, an old New England family. Yeah? Yeah. I know. I checked on her this afternoon. She and her girlfriend are going to be our first bit of camouflage. Oh, boy. Imagine being camouflaged with them. Camouflage me all over, brother. Oh, shut up. Just take along with whatever I say. It's just horrid your mother and dad want to drag you off to Bar Harbor. Yes, I wish I could stay on here with you, Martha. Anyway, it won't be for another two weeks. I beg your pardon, but aren't you Martha Sanford? Why, yes. Oh, I guess you don't remember me. So many fellas were giving you the rush at Dartmouth last winter. Oh, were you at Dartmouth that week? Yeah. I guess I didn't make much of an impression, though. My name is Hack, Bobby Hack. Bobby Hack, were you in the ski jumping contest? No, I was just a spectator, but, well, Jimmy here, he tried to break his neck in the ski jump. Me? Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Sanford, this is Jimmy Stewart. How do you do? And this is Julie Harris. Oh, oh how hi. do you do? Hello, Miss Harris. Well, you girls seem to be going somewhere. It was nice meeting you again, though, and perhaps we'll see you now that we're all here at the resort together. I don't see why not. Well, that'll be fine. Well, goodbye, Miss Sanford. It's been a pleasure, Miss Harris. Yeah, me too. Goodbye. Well, goodbye. For Pete's sake, will you cut out that Me Too stuff? My Volansky, what did you let him get away for? We could have dated him easy. There's no rush. No rush at all. We won't pull another job until next week. Then we'll use him proper. Attention, squad room. Report from Cambridge, Massachusetts on warehouse robbery. Two gunmen believed heading this direction in Black Buick, Massachusetts license, heavily armed and dangerous. All police be on alert for this car. Come on, let's get into the car, will you? Those girls don't come, we'll go without them. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Get in. Society dames never are on time anyhow, Tillotson. Can I go into the hotel and tell them to shake a leg? Look, you don't tell society dames like them to shake a leg. No, you don't, huh? Okay. But I'm still sick of waiting. Oh, here they come now. Hello, have we kept you waiting? Not if one hour ain't long. You ain't. Oh, don't pay attention to Jimmy, girls. Uh, I'm trying to cure him of the habit of saying ain't, but he says some of the Harvard boys say it. (laughs) Hop in, girls. Jim, get in the back seat with Julie. Okay, you're the boss. He does have a grouch. Indigestion. <laughs> You'll get over it, Martha. Well, girls, where'll it be? It really doesn't matter. <laughs> now, look what's coming. Scram. Cop. What did you say? Get going. Look at that flat foot's coming over to the car. What's the matter with you boys? Oh, pardon me. Is this your car, young man? Why, yes, officer. Hmm. Black Buick, eh? What's wrong with that, officer? It may be nothing, miss. Only we're looking for a car of this type in connection with a holdup over in Massachusetts. Why, the very idea. Are you accusing us? I'm not accusing anybody. Just checking. Ah, oh, never mind, Shirley. 
Officer has to do his duty. Hmm. New Hampshire plates. The bandit car had a Massachusetts license. Well, there's your answer, officer. Okay, pal, let's go. Just a moment. You're probably okay, but let's see your driver's license and car registration. Oh, I certainly, officer. I'm sorry, I, I don't seem to have him with me. Now, see here, this is ridiculous. I'm Martha Sanford, officer, and if you want proof of who I am... Well, I'm not worried about you, young woman. But your escorts here will have to identify themselves. I'll stand on the running board. You better drive to the police station. No, you don't. Cop it. Step on it, pal. Bobby, what are you doing? Sit low in your seats. Uh, on fire. Bobby, stop this car. Shut up. That cop's running back to his car. He's coming after us. Oh, please, stop. We'll all be killed. Shut up, I'll crown you. You must be banned. Look out, pal. Don't hit that tree. No. Yeah. You okay? Yeah. I just had my wind knocked out. Here, help me out of here. Yeah. Back. My back. Come on, come on. Get me out of okay. here, will you? Yeah. There we are. Okay. My back. Oh, I'm dying. Come on, Belansky. We got a blow. Yeah, you said it. Ah, she died. She died. Fingerprints on the wrecked Buick indicate the driver was Stanley Belansky. Belansky, huh? And the whole country's looking for him. <laughs> How are the girls? Well, Miss Harris will recover. The doctors say Miss Sanford is dying. Oh, that's terrible. Her back was broken. She's right here in the emergency room. This way. Now, don't leave, nurse. We may need you as a witness. Miss Sanford, can you see this picture I have in my hand? Is that Belansky's picture, Lieutenant? Yes. It's not clear. Maybe. I'll hold it closer. Yes. Bobby Hack. He said... You're positive, Miss Sanford? Yes, I know. I'm afraid there's nothing more we can do here, Lieutenant. She'll identify the picture just in time. Warning. Gunmen believed to be Malansky and Tillotson have just pulled you hold up. Watch greater Boston area. Malansky headed that way, armed and dangerous. Attention. North Walpole Sporting Goods Store robbed of 40 rifles, 30 revolvers... Large quantities of ammunition. Special notice, new kidnapping and robbery. Believe work of Belansky and Tillotson. Uh, three oaks in and the rocks are glassy. You know, Tillotson, this is one of the swellest views on the whole North Shore. Let's skip the scenery, Belansky. It's after midnight. Let's get to work. You know, New England ain't healthy for us no more. We want to get this job over with and head south like we planned. Okay, okay. 
Just think of it, though, Pam. This, this hotel's full of people. Come on, will you? Will you come on? Okay. Oh, look, the manager's bedroom's that window up there on the second floor. Yeah. We can climb up this trellis. Okay, I'll go first. Just like Romeo climbing up the trellis. Watch it. Yeah. Ain't no manager's bedroom, it's a woman's. Yeah. What is it, though? Don't make no noise, lady. <laughs> you make another sound, and we'll choke you right out of this world. Now, who are you? Are you a guest here? I, I'm the cook, but no good will you do you. Take us to the manager's room. You must be me. Why, you fat cow, I'll break your neck. This is Larry. Is anything wrong in there? This is Larry. Who's that? Quiet. It's, it's burglars, Mr. Brown. Wrap that gun around her head. What's going on? Get your hands up. Why, why? Get your hands up. You're Brown, the manager, ain't you? Yes. Now, get this straight. You've got a lot of wealthy guests here. We're going to go around to each room. You're going to knock on the door and wake them up. We're going to rob every one of them. No, I won't. Well, do what we say, mister. And after we rob all the guests, then you'll open the hotel safe. We're doing a complete job. Yeah. Spring house cleaning. And don't try any funny work. The telephone wires are cut. We're way off on these isolated rocks, and if necessary, we can kill everyone here. Boy, this will go down in history. <laughs> We're having a whole hotel at one time. Yes, Commissioner Valentine. For over two hours, Belansky and Tillotson held everyone in that hotel at gunpoint. And that, Sheriff Head, was one of the most daring robberies in years. Now, Sheriff Head... Polanski and his partner, Tillotson, after robbing an entire hotel, headed south. Yes, Commissioner Valentine. And they pulled so many big robberies in the south, our time doesn't permit us to enumerate them. But the gunmen continued to follow out their plan of camouflaging themselves by going around with only the leading families and the finest girls. In fact, one such young lady went driving with them just outside of Biloxi, Mississippi. It's awfully sweet of you young men to drive me way out to my uncle's like this. I do hate riding on buses. Well, Isabella, it's easy to sweet, be sweet to a girl like you. Uh, yeah, besides, you could camouflage. Camouflage? Oh, he, he means uh, you're so pretty, you, you dress up the cars. Oh, <laughs> you know, I never thought I'd like northern boys, but I feel like I've known you two all my life. Oh, uh, here's my uncle's house. Turn in his driveway. Okay. I know Uncle's going to be glad to see you. To see us? Uh-huh. Why, does he know we're coming? Why, sure. I telephoned him and told him I was bringing out the nicest young man. Hey, that your Uncle's car in front of the house? Why, yes. Hey, wait a minute, Isabel. Just who is your Uncle? Well, I, I told I don't mind his name. It's a police car there. There's a stall on it. Well, what's got you boys so upset? Just because my uncle's a sheriff? It's a trap, pal. She brought us here on purpose. Now, why should I do such a thing as that? Because you probably read the account of the holdup at the Wiggins Bank. Polanski, 
A guy's coming out of the house. Yeah, I see him. Well, that's Malcolm. Yank the dame back in the car. We'll hold her as a hostage. Come here, you... No, you don't! Oh, Dad, a heck with the dame. Go ahead, step on it! Hey, that guy's shooting at us. Keep low. If I could only get my hands on that dame, now I'd kill her. What a rotten trick she pulled on us. I'm telling you, Balansky, it's getting so you can't trust nobody. Nobody. Come in. Hello, Captain James. Well, Barton, what brings you down to Biloxi? Those two bank robbers whose description you broadcast yesterday, the ones who robbed the Wiggins Bank. I flew down as soon as I read about them. Flew down? The FBI must want to mind a bed. They sound like the men we've been chasing all over New England. Polanski and Tillotson. I'm sorry, but we haven't even got a clue on them, Barton. Well, Captain James, I've been studying their method of operation for weeks. And I've got an idea of how we might get on their trail. Yeah? How? Well, those gunmen never hide out in the usual places. They appear in public with respectable girls and pose as young men of wealth. By Godfrey, that's how Sheriff Howard's niece almost caught him. Now, it's only a hunch, Captain James. But I have an idea. If we canvass the restaurants and entertainment spots, we may find Balansky and Tillotson spending some of their money right under our noses. Now, this cafe we're coming to isn't exactly the highest class spot, Barton, but it's very popular. Well, we might as well try it, Captain James. We haven't had any luck yet. Well, you can give the place the once-over from the vestibule here. Hmm. Quite a crowd. No, no sign of... Hey, James. Here? Yeah? That table in the far corner, near the exit sign. Is that Polanski? Yeah. The girl at the table with him and that other chap. That's Tillerson. What a break. There's so many people in there, they're jammed in like sardines. Mm. How are we going to get to that table without being spotted? Both Tillerson and Polanski are bound to have guns. If they ever start shooting in that crowd, it'll be a wholesale massacre. Yeah. Wait, I've got an idea. Here's a couple of waiters' aprons. Yeah. See, that might do the trick. Yeah. I have this string in back of me. Right. You think we ought to carry a tray or something? No, we'll need our hands for action. I'm ready. Now, remember, James, we've got to grab those rats before they can pull their guns. If they do spot us, jump to the table. Yeah. Knock the table over and pull the tablecloth over their heads. Right. Okay. Come on. Fast, James. Not too fast. Yeah. The girl's looking this way. Yeah, I see her. Keep walking. Just a few more steps. He sees us. Come on. Dive for him fast. Right. Got him. Oh, oh, got him. that glass. He got that. He put the cuffs on him, James. I got this one. Okay. You bet. But they don't show Okay, Balansky, start walking. You and Tillotson are all washed up. Well, Commissioner Valentine, Balansky and Tillotson were sentenced to life in prison in the Mississippi Penitentiary for robbing the Wiggins Bank. But just 22 days ago, on October 5th, at 8 o'clock Friday morning, four prisoners were loaded into the truck cage at the penitentiary to be taken to the prison farm. One of those prisoners was Balansky. The prison truck was driving along the road. Now, listen, you guys. Yeah. I think we're safe because they got us in this iron cage in the back of the truck here. Oh. Well, we had a 38 smuggled into the prison. 
Kennedy's up next to the driver. They think he's a trustee, but he's got that gun. And he's going to poke it in the driver's ribs. Then things are going to happen, and happen fast. You ready? Okay, Kennedy. Stop his truck, or I'll blow your head off. Come on, Kennedy, open this cage, quick. Okay, come on, throw that driver in there. That does it. Hold on, guys, we're going places. Come on, Kennedy, get this train rolling. Hurry up. Emergency to all state police and sheriffs. Stanley Polanski and four other convicts escaping in prison truck along Highway 7. These convicts all armed and will kill. Black all roads. Black all roads. Attention, all police. Attention, all police. Polanski and convicts who abandoned prison truck and kidnapped women and children have released victims and are now fleeing in Black Buick sedan along road to Tunica. Be ready to shoot it out with fleeing convicts headed by Polanski. Kennedy, look. There's lights in the road up ahead. Must be cops. We can run them down, Polanski. You guys lie down on the floor of the car. Get down. Yeah, you're going to shoot out with them? No cops ever going to take me again, I'll tell you that. All right, then. Here we go. Come on, sir. Hey, they didn't get us. Just ahead, this road left. Leads in the swamp. Take it. Every cop in the south is after us. I'll kill them. I'll, I'll kill them if they ever get anywhere near me. Hold on now. I'm going to take that turn. And look out, look out the trees. I can't, I can't. Look out, I can't. Get out of the car, man. The cops are already come down the road. All right. Come on, fellas. Take to the swamp. It's our only chance. Come, come on, on, this way. Right come on, man. Keep going. Uh, sure don't know how you ever found this deserted house, Polanski. You're mighty good. Yeah, those fools were out looking for us in the swamp. You and me was having ourselves a good night's sleep in this house here. Sun will be up in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, how are we going to get out of these parts? <laughs> Don't you worry about that. I got more tricks up my sleeve than these hicks down here ever dreamed of. I think we ought to get going now. I think we ought to... Hey, Belanski. What's the matter? There's a whole army surrounding the house. What? Man, dogs, guns. Boy, the dirty rats. Yeah. Look, look, look. All right, I give up. I give up, coppers. I'm through. And this time, Bolanski, you're through for good. Yes, Commissioner Valentine. Just three weeks ago today, Bolanski was caught in that deserted house. And tonight, he's once again in the Mississippi State Penitentiary for life. This has been a very, very interesting case, Sheriff Head. Bolanski could have been a real success in life. But instead, he has nothing to look forward to except prison bars. Across the Atlantic, from across the Pacific, our fathers, sons, and brothers are returning to a new America. A crime wave has followed every war, and we must not allow lawbreakers to tear down here at home the very ideals that our men have fought to preserve.
Gangbusters is a Phillips H. Lord production. Thank you.